I just walked out of my sixth grade class, walked across, you know, to the, and I walked into this old auditorium, and it was very dark. And I walked right back by John Cage and David Tudor, and they were still uh, just getting ready. And Merce Cunningham came out of the shadows, and they rehearsed a piece, and I, I just remember thinking, oh. There's something out there, but there was something about the way he moved his relationship to his body that was transformative. And I always hold that as the moment when I kind of woke up to yeah. something that was that I didn't know about, that was that truly uh, affected me and touched me. Yes, yes. So first of all, thank you so much. I'm just delighted to be here. Um, and uh, my new album is called Hymn of the Universe. And um, so Vocal Essence has actually does almost everything on the album. It has two extra pieces and then Hymn of the Universe, which is about 30 minutes long. Uh, so they do Antiphon for a Virgin and Hymn of the Universe. And you're right, uh, in March, I released um, a memoir called Let Your Heart Be Broken and uh, Life and Music of a Classical Composer. And, you know, I've been composing for almost 50 years now. And uh, the book is not only about my childhood and my musical upbringing, um, but also how 
I write music and my relationship to writing music over the years. So I'm delighted to be here and to talk to you about. Yes. Well, um, in Let Your Heart Be Broken, what I do, which is kind of interesting, is that every other chapter is a short story about my life. And then the alternate chapter is actually a year of journals. So I am a, an avid journalist. So part of my composing process is to read. Um, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a voracious reader now, but I used to be voracious and I just read anything, but I was always looking for information to feed my composing mind. Uh, you know, it was kind of like, it was like having breakfast every morning I had breakfast of, of reading and then journaling became a very important part of my life, not so much to document what I was doing, but what I was thinking, what I was feeling and how I was composing. And actually I kept a composing journal, a personal journal, and then actually a spiritual journal. So I had, you know, I was, so every other chapter is a year of these uh, journals. And, uh, you know, my, my publisher asked me, she said, well, how much of your journal do you, you know, because they'd be 15, 20 pages, and then it would be another short story and another year. So I do 10 years of, of journals. And I said, well, probably I took maybe 10% of the journal because, you know, journals are a lot of blah, 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 blah. And, and a lot of times they're the way you process life around you, which is not very interesting. Like, I hate her, I hate her, I hate her. <laughs> How could they do, you know, that's that's sort of like, I always call it garbage in and garbage out. Um, but I was writing also a lot about what I was reading and a lot about my composing process. So I think the book really gives you sort of a hands-on, this was what was going through my mind while I was creating music. And also while, while I was living my life. This is the relationship I was having uh, with my music to my life and from my music back to my life. And I've always been a composer that really uses my own self as a template. So I, I think that other composers just don't do that, but I always feel that what I'm going through right now is grist for the mill in my music. So uh, in my 30s, I was going through a lot of personal reevaluation of my childhood. So I was writing things about my childhood. Um, I, uh, there, uh, there's a set of pieces uh, uh, called Descending Figure with Lullaby, and it was uh, uh, poems about the death of a child. Uh, there's another one called The Dark Child Sings, which was allowing that sort of dark part of myself to have voice. Um, and then 
I slowly started to move into uh, things that were more spiritually oriented after about 20 years, sort of in the third decade of my composing. I was really starting to be interested in what is my relationship to things that are beyond my imagination or uh, the earth or um, and, and certainly the pieces on the recording, which now we're going to go back to the recording hymn of the universe, was a big part of that. Um, so, um, for instance, I'll give you an example. I was I wrote a string quartet, and it's called The Delight of Angels. And it, I read that angels, according to Christian and Jewish tradition, they dance without stopping in their joy of being uh, connected to God. And I just thought, what would that be like to be that joyous that all you could do was express it in this sort of dance, in, in, in movement? Um, and I, I would say that a lot of my music has a lot to do with energy and movement and how I move through things. So this was kind of perfect, the delight of angels. Um, so yes, so that that's really what my um, memoir is about. It's that relationship between my life and my music uh, in a sort of discrete period of time, sort of the uh, second and third decade of composing. You know, for me, it's all one sort of mashed potatoes. You know, I've, um, I think I grew up as a classical pianist. And uh, although my teachers gave me a lot of contemporary music, I just didn't know it was contemporary music. Um, and I was quite a good pianist by the time I got to college. But what I really resonated with is a composer's authentic voice. I felt that when they were truly authentic to themselves and their time and place, wherever they were in their lives, to me, that's what can, that's what I imagine connected the most to me. And so then there was no distinction between my personal life and, and my creative life. And in a funny way, you know, I don't know if you have this experience, but I was extremely focused and, you know, I was a single parent and I, you know, I, it wasn't like I was just in my garret all alone, but I was extremely focused. And in a funny way, music became like a, a second life for me. It, it was, you know, it, it was like, uh, <laughs> when can I get to this, back to this other life that I, uh, I need to be in. And, um, and uh, so, that was really, um, um, so 
I never made any distinctions between composing and uh, and my personal life. It it all felt like the same thing. Um, and that just is my take. I know a lot of composers just don't do that. You know, they, they don't, you know, although how could you not be in that place? I think it depends upon whether you're doing it um, intentionally or unintentionally, but, you know, it's still, it's still there. Yes. And, and the truth is, is that it, it depends upon what you're writing. Uh, you know, if uh, certainly when I was writing Hymn of the Universe, um, they had already performed Antiphon for a Virgin. In fact, they, uh, Vocal Essence loved it so much, they had actually memorized it. And I had never had like a big group memorize a piece of music. I, I, I was really just gobsmacked by that. Um, and when I was writing it for them, I was, I was, I, when I write for someone like Hilary Hahn or the Kronos Quartet, I think about them. You know, how do they play their instruments? Uh, like Kronos Quartet, the first violinist, he's thin and kind of wiry, and I don't think he sleeps much. You know, how does that impact his uh, playing? So it's both, um, it's all those things. Who's listening? Um, what do I want to say? Um, that can get kind of complicated sometimes. Um, and certainly when I'm just writing a piece for myself, um, it's different. You know, the audience is different. You know, what do I want to hear? Yeah. Uh, um, and I don't think any of those perspectives are wrong. They are just, it depends upon what's going on in your life. Um, and I think when, he, when I have a commission, it is a lot more pressure. You know, I, you know, it is more pressure. I mean, I mean, you just can't get away from that. I, I can't get away from that. Um, when it's personal, um, I think the pieces, I don't want to say they're smaller, but um, it's just different. I'm writing a piece right now and I'm doing a lot of experimenting with chords. It's for piano. And I, I want to get a kind of a string sound where you're kind of glissing down. But you can't do that on the piano. <laughs> um, I'm really interested when you beat a chord, like if you're playing it multiple times or you're oscillating it like this, you know, um, and the sound when you're playing it may be different the closer you get to the music, you know, to the instrument than far away. Uh, but I love that kind of sort of trying to create a more of a shimmering effect. Um, and of course, if you're a good pianist, maybe you'll, you know, if someone was playing it, sometimes I have to say, oh, slow that down. <laughs> that's, that's faster than I wanted it. You're too good. Um, 
but certainly writing Hymn of the Universe, considering Philip, uh, uh, considering the ensemble, um, you know, it's just, it's like creating this almost beautiful suit of clothing. You know, you're the designer, you get to create whatever you want, but it has to fit them. And I have a pretty flexible relationship uh, to my music, which really works to my benefit. Um, I always feel like I'm in a place of collaboration. So first of all, I'm not only collaborating with the music, um, but when, I, when I'm setting texts, I'm really collaborating. My job setting texts is to get to the heart of what the text is trying to say, both musically and also in terms of the articulation of the words. So I feel like my job is to hold up the words, not to sort of co-opt them. You know, it, it is it is this, and these uh, these texts came from. Let me just go back, and I will answer this in a long way, but let me give you this story of him of the universe. So I was in Kansas City. I think I was with the Kansas City Orchestra. I don't know why I was there, but I was being housed by a board member of the symphony. And she was someone who worked for HR uh, in, in, a, in a really, uh, I don't even know what company, but it was a big company. She was a, this lovely woman. And uh, we spent a lot of time together. And she finally told me that she was a former nun and she had given up the order and had gone in. And she said, you know, after I've been talking to you, I think you should read the books of Pierre Talliard de Chardin, who was, um, a, a, he was a, 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 an amazing Catholic priest. Um, I think he was a Jesuit. And I think, yeah, I think he was a Jesuit. And they kind of, are a little bit out there, you know, on the edge. 
Um, <clears throat> and he had written all these books. He had been born in the 50s. And yeah, he, he was you know, renowned for his pioneering fieldwork in paleontology. But he also believed in evolution. So he wrote these books about how we are evolving towards Christ. We are we are on this. And of course, the Vatican really didn't like that word, <laughs> evolution. So they would send him off to Tibet, you know, go back to your bones, you know, go, go away, go teach. Um, so he wrote these books that are, are quite pithy, but they were really about our relationship to the earth and our love of the earth and that we and the earth are in a, a state of evolution. Um, and uh, so getting back to collaboration, I read a lot of his books and then I created um, three big movements uh, that were based on his books. And the first one, um, he is uh, he's in Tibet and he's climbing up a mountain and he gets to the top of this mountain and there's this sunrise and he is just so awestruck and he says you know here i am i've come all this way to meet you god and i have nothing i didn't bring anything to to make a eucharist i didn't bring any wine i didn't bring any bed bread so i will offer up myself uh and that at the end of that movement, um, he says, uh, you know, this bread, our toil is of itself. Uh, our wine is the pain. But what we really want to do is that you've implanted this desire irresistible, which makes us cry out, Lord, make us one. <laughs> I'm not a Christian, I'm not a Catholic, but boy, that really spoke to me. So how do I collaborate with that text to illuminate it and to be true to this? And so there's this, particularly when I'm write, uh, writing with text, there's this twofold collaboration that I have, not only with the music, but with the text. Now the music is like, how do I bring myself to this? And then I always feel that the collaboration, once the piece is done, and we can talk about the other movements another time, but once the piece is done, then I start to collaborate with the performers. They have to take on the piece. They have to manifest it in some way. And I have to allow them enough flexibility uh, maybe I, uh, you know, they'll make some suggestions or even the way the, uh, maybe I didn't really quite consider all the breathing that they have to do. <laughs> we have to add some breathing and uh, some of the dynamics. A lot of times we have to shift that. Um, but I always come to it as I am collaborating with the ensemble, with the conductor. And then I always feel that then the ensemble goes and collaborates with the audience. And to me, that whole process is a, a kind of collaboration. Um, I have to remain true to my ideas. Sometimes I'll say, oh, that's probably not going to work for me. Uh, sometimes I just have to let them, like, let's try it out. What do you have? What you got? What do you got? You know, show me. 
And um, and then sometimes I say, how about this? Let's do the first performance and see how the way I wanted it and see how it shakes out. Because that first performance is so important in the shaping of a piece. So I love that idea of collaboration. And usually I'll say, I said this lately to an ensemble. I said, okay, you're going to go out there, forget the music, forget the notes. They're really not that important. So you make a mistake. Who cares? I, you know, just it doesn't really matter. What matters is that you're communicating with the audience. Um, so you have my permission to. Great. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. And that you don't um, have to be uh, preaching a way of life to share the innate uh, universality of what is being said. You don't have to be a Catholic to read these texts and go, oh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. You know that, oh, <laughs> it's not even a word. <laughs> it's, oh, yeah, yeah. And I'm always 
looking uh, for that experience. I have a piece uh, for strings and piano. Actually, it used, was a, a string orchestra piece called Barefoot. And I was, it was in the winter and I, oh man, I just wanted to take off my shoes and touch the earth. You know, that idea of just being in the earth and that, that special connection to the earth that you have with your feet. And then I was thinking about Moses and the burning bush and how, as he approaches God, God says to him, you know, if you're going to get any closer, you need to take off your shoes. And I just love that idea of bearing your S-O-L-E, your soul, to the earth and to God to receive what is there. And so this piece is called Barefoot. Uh, and my music isn't, I wouldn't say that it's a, a picture of being barefoot. It's just I hold that idea in my head. And then I just sort of let uh, the music sort of tell me where it's going. I have some sort of scientific or logical or experimental or some external ideas that I'm interested in. Like, if how can I take this melodic section and just make it not a minute, but four minutes? Is that possible to extend it so that you don't, and not repeat the melody, but you feel like you're in that. And even with Hymn of the Universe, I felt that the text was so gripping and so evocative that it took time to experience it. You couldn't just go through it in five minutes or, you know, you had to almost be in that flow for a long period to absorb it. Um, I tend to repeat a lot of the words that I love. So, so if there's a phrase that I think, you know, I always feel like that words are like beautiful stones in my mouth and, oh, this just tastes so good. Or I just love, you know, the smoothness of it. So I do tend to repeat. I, I very rarely go through a text just from top to bottom uh, because my mind works as I'm reading, I'm also connecting forward and backwards and to the side. So I think that's the way I like to compose it. You know, um, I went to Bennington College and their relationship to contemporary music, to contemporary music history was very much of an American history. If you go to like the University of Pennsylvania or, you know, any of the higher uh, PhD programs, they certainly when I was younger, they tended to be very Western music oriented. But Bennington was always about, you know, um, let me see if I can think of some of them, uh, Carl Ruggles, um, Henry Cowell. Uh, they were just kind of East Coast, you know, Charles Ives, you know, they, they were, they didn't really play to any of those Western music uh, idealization. 
they loved it, but they didn't idealize it. They, I don't think that they felt that their voice was coming out of a European tradition called a non-caro. So then I really started to feel that my people were um, experimental composers, although my music is not experimental by any stretch of the imagination, but they embodied for me much more of that kind of interested in, I want to say a living relationship to what you're not connected to the past. How am I going to be a Beethoven now, but a more of an experimental living relationship with composing. Um, I have to say that when I was 12, Merce Cunningham and John Cage came to my mother's college as a professor in upstate New York. And my mother called up the office and said, I'm giving my daughter permission to walk out in the middle of the day of the school and walk across to the college and go to some of the dress rehearsals. Of course, we would never imagine doing this now. You know, the child needs to be chaperoned. It's, you know, it's got to be a blood relative, you know. Great. <laughs> um, I just walked out of my sixth grade class, walked across, you know, to the, and I walked into this old auditorium and it was very dark. And I walked right back by John Cage and David Tudor. And they were still uh, just getting ready. And Merce Cunningham came out of the shadows. And they rehearsed a piece. And I, I just remember thinking, oh, there's something out there. I mean, I was a total ballerina nut. But there was something about the way he moved his relationship to his body that was transformative. And I always hold that as the moment when I kind of woke up to something that was, that I didn't know about, that was, that truly uh, affected me and touched me. Um, and so, yeah, so I was, I did a lot of work with Pauline Oliveris. Um, I became the uh, president of New Music America, which was an organization that had been developed, I think in 75, because nobody was performing music of, of, of composers who were outside of the university. So they decided to have a festival, uh, you know, like Steve Reich and Philip Glass and, so I later uh, became, by mistake, became the president of the board. Um, and they, I, the last big festival was up in Montreal. It was always about uh, four, was it 10-day festival usually? And what these composers did is they got together, they created this festival, and then the next year they'd chop it to another city. And they'd say to a presenter, why don't you do this? We'll help you fundraise or something. And they created this organization that had no overhead at all. <laughs> it had no overhead because the ensemble or whoever was the presenter took the overhead. So it was in Miami, it was in Washington, it was in San Francisco, it was uh, in, at Brooklyn Academy of Music. There was a big one there. 
Um, and that's sort of when I became president. Um, and the rules were really pretty simple. It's contemporary music. You have to present women. You have to present uh, crossover jazz. And we would really support you uh, supporting crossover rock and roll. Uh, but it was experimental composers mostly. Um, and uh, in Miami, uh, excuse me, it was in Miami, uh, but it, in Montreal, at that moment, the funding in the United States kind of fell apart. That was when the, um, the National Endowment stopped giving money to artists directly. Uh, that was the Mapplethorpe, Serrano, uh, Karen Finley, where they felt that they were using sexual terms in music in the end that we shouldn't, the government shouldn't support it. So that all, all that funding stopped. Uh, so um, I did one more festival, which was New Music Across America. I had 14 different cities, plus two in Canada and two in Europe. And then I fundraised uh, money to go back to these ensembles. And it was a four-day festival, but it was happening all at the same time, which was super cool to think that, you know, it, there were so many of these festivals going on at the same time. So that's just to say my music doesn't sound experimental, uh, but I feel that my roots are in experimental um, music. And certainly Pauline Oliveris was, you know, an, a, a giant in, in that, that respect. And in community building and rethinking how one creates music. Um, that's kind of a long answer. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And the way that we, we as composers and performers interact, um, you know, Pauline took a, a, a real step further and that a lot of her musics were word driven. And so she would ask the performers to play a piece which was improvised, but it was based on words like soaring, connecting, supporting. So sometimes you were soaring in your improvisation, sometimes you were connecting with other, you would hear something and then connect with them. And sometimes you would hear another performer and you would do something that was supportive of what they were doing. And, um, you know, she really was thinking about a larger kind of relationship uh, that that you can have with music and creating music, which I really appreciated.
Well, yeah, one of the things that I have really worked hard at in the last 20, 25 years is creating programs for anybody to compose music. So I think that is part of the conversation is that in our sort of classical music world, we relegate the creation of it to geniuses, to the Mozarts, to the, you know, um, we don't bring it down to sort of the vernacular where when I was a kid, I went to my kindergarten class and there was an easel over in the corner of the room with the paints all laid out. And the teacher put, I write about this in my book, the teacher put on, a, helped me get on a smock. And then she gave me the best art lesson in the world. And it's try not to get the paints on the floor. 
And then you, you, it's not that I became a great artist, but I was given permission to do what I needed to do. I wasn't told what paintbrush to use, what color to use, blah, 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 blah. So I created a program uh, for inner city school kids when I was living in Philadelphia called Young Composers. And we always started with building an instrument. And I taught in schools that were really pretty poor. So they didn't have instruments in their school. They didn't even have a music teacher. So I said, well, what do you have at home? And they said, we have junk. I said, okay, bring in your junk. We created them out of recycled materials. They're free. And what's wonderful is when you have a kid, when you allow a child to make an instrument, I had no instructions. I just would pile the cans and the bottles and the shoe boxes. I said, so what do you think? You know, wh how, how would you make an instrument out of these? Once they created their own instruments, of course it was bedlam, but I kind of like bedlam. Um, then they had to write music. You know, the next step is, of course you have to write music. Well, they don't know anything about music. I said, okay, let's take big paper. Let's draw it. Draw, work with two or three other kids, create a title, draw me the story with your instruments. And so they would create this big graphic notation piece. And then I said, okay, let's make the paper smaller for the next classes. Now you're going to invent notation. And music is really simple. It's sound, it's absence of sound, and it's time, it's duration, how long the note, how long the piece, and it's organized. But it's pretty simple, you know. And I said, how are you going to write high and low or medium? How are you going to write length, like how long a sound, how repeated, you know? And they would create their own language. And the rule was they had to be able to play it when I came back the next week because the notation made sense to them. Uh, it had to sort of sound the same, you know. That, um, and then I would work with them and they would create like a, 20 30 minute performance and perform it for their school amazing you, they perform the audience claps i mean it's just like the perfect sort of response that supports um children feeling good about themselves and my idea was always give them permission to write music and see themselves as creative. And I think that's the part that we don't do well with. I want people to argue with me and say, oh, I could have written a better piece than you. You know, like how they do with art. They go, oh, I could have done better than that. Well, that's ownership. And that's what I want to inspire is ownership. Um, because I think then the art form becomes much more attractive to people when they feel it's about them or they can do it too, or they have a relationship with it. But if it's for geniuses, it's like, it's like people who are super rich and live in mansions, you know, that, that has nothing to do with me. Um, so that's, I think, part of my sense of wanting to share, uh, you know, I love my field. It's done a lot of damage to its audiences, but um, 
uh, that's my interest is that I think what you said, you know, like with the mushrooms and, you know, there is something there. It's something innate for all of us. And it's something that we can tap into and create. We don't have to have other people always creating it for us. But if they do, then we can say, oh, yeah, I, oh, I have a deeper understanding of that. Well, it's 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 sort of teaching without a rubric, which I always hate rubrics. You know, I, um, it is like um, I when I teach, really, what I want to do is I want to share my excitement, so you get excited, and you go off and you do whatever you need to do. Um, you know, that my deep love of my field. Um, is transmitted, you know, is a part of that electricity. And you're like, oh, well, oh, I hadn't thought. It's sort of like what Merce Cunningham did for me. You know, he just woke me up. I then had to go do the work. But the work, once you've got them hooked, the work is not hard. Uh, it may be because you have the ulterior motivation. You know what you want. So you have to practice scales, bummer, but it's a means to an end. It's a means to something that is woken up in you. And so, uh, you know, I was, I've forgotten who I was talking to and they were saying, oh, this piano teacher, he was so, you know, into the, the technique. And I said, well, you know, technique is important. You have to have it. You have to have that practice, but when you want it for yourself, it's a totally different thing.
Right. Right. Yes. I totally agree. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I've loved it. You know, I, you know, it's something I just, you know, it's like the love of your children. You kind of want other people to love your children too. <laughs> and, um, and uh, you know, it's something that I'm, you know, I, I, I've been really fortunate that I've had this lifelong relationship with, with music. And um, I think that as I continue to write about music, it is also finding words to talk about it so that people who know nothing about music can start to feel comfortable about it. It's so in my book, I never talk about chords or progressions or I talk a lot about energy, but my sense of energy is like if I'm running and running and running and running and I'm moving and I'm moving and I'm moving, but I run out of energy, what happens at that moment? Uh, for me, when I'm exhausted, I am released and it kind of like my heart goes up to God. It has no place to go but up because I'm no longer in that daily kind of grind of moving. Um, so, but that's really different than talking about, I could talk about how I love to switch meters. <laughs> uh, you know, I love the one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, you know, because it kind of lifts, uh, but that's not as interesting, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I do have a, another recording coming out in the spring. Uh, it's for piano and multiple strings, and it's actually going to be named Barefoot. Um, we've done the recording and we're uh, finishing up the editing now. That's exciting. And I'm, I'm writing a piano piece, but I'm also really fairly committed to do some more deep writing about music. I'm really interested in um, composing or uh, composing in the, in the aging process. What happens? For me, as um, I get, what happens to my creativity? Because for so long, my creativity was like so narrow and so driven, um, just about music. And now I'm feeling much more relaxed, like I can write, I can, you know, uh, that there are many more avenues for my creativity. And I'm really interested in that. So, 
Mm-hmm. Right. It is. It is. It is a very nice. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. This has been delightful. Thank you. It's let your heart be broken, life, life and music of a classical composer, and you can get that on Amazon. And the new release is Hymn of the Universe, and it is wherever you stream your music. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You thank you again. Well, that was a top 10 moment for me. I just really enjoyed that conversation with Tina. You can find more of her music and more of about her out at her website, tinadavidson.com. You can also find the, a large breadth of her works out, of course, on the streaming platforms, you know, Spotify, Apple, and all of that. Uh, my thanks also goes to uh, the folks over at Jensen Artists who have helped arrange for this conversation, plus sending her music my way. I appreciate you guys very much. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning into Ambient Discourses, conversations with musicians and composers who create musical experiences and sonic landscapes. Until next time, keep creating. <laughs>